Guys, happy Sunday evening. I hope you're doing well. I hope you've had a good morning and a good afternoon. And as we get ready to dig into God's word, our prayer as a team, our prayer as a leadership, uh, one of the things that God just convicted me of is, man, God gives us his truth. It's right here. We can open up Bibles. You've got them on the edges of roads. If you don't own a Bible or have a Bible, please, by all means, take that with you. But we don't necessarily always show up uh, maybe really expecting for God to move or for God to change us or shape us. And so I, I, I would just challenge you, be prepared for what the Lord has for you guys tonight uh, as we dig into God's word. If you want to go ahead and start flipping, First Peter chapter 4 is where we're going to be in verse 12. We've been working through the book of First Peter, and we are going to finish chapter 4 tonight. We have one chapter left. That would be chapter 5, obviously. But next week, I am not going to be preaching. Instead, Reuben Moyana, who a number of you guys know, Native African, uh, an elder at Cross Point Church, part of the leadership that sent Midtree out, is going to be coming really just to be a blessing to our, our church, to encourage us as the sending church. Uh, and, and so I am amped up about it and really looking forward to it. Uh, if you have friends who don't know the Lord or are not plugged into a church, what a great Sunday to invite them to come. That'll be next week when Reuben comes and, uh, and shares with us. So I don't know how you guys are and how much winter you like. I, I feel like everybody has an opinion on this. Some people wish winter was longer. Some people wish we had a winter. Some people wish that winter didn't exist. I typically am very happy with the way the seasons play out, at, at least in Columbus, Georgia. It, it's sort of what I know, and as soon as it starts getting uh, cold for any period of time, I am ready for spring. And the first thing that signifies spring to me, I know we have two months, by the way, um, I'm a little more ready this year. I don't know why. It's just been a depressing year, so winter's less exciting. Like, Merry Christmas. I'm not going to see any of you, right? Like, family, sorry. I guess we'll talk on the phone. So it's just been a little bit grayer, I, I think, of a winter. And so I'm looking forward to, to the spring. And the first thing on our property that signifies spring is we have some dogwood trees. And they're always the first to bloom. They have these bright white petals. And I, I was thinking about this concept of spring and this passage that we're going to look at. And I was thinking, man, God, it, it is so true that when we see life come up out of cold, rocky ground, we get excited. And those same flowers that burst forth, we don't just leave in distant fields. We love to kind of take them from their native area and bring them into our home and remind ourselves on the inside of the life that's going on on the outside. But flowers, even in their death, when they dry up and when they're crushed, they let off this incredible perfume. And I was thinking about us as Christians. If you're somebody who has your faith in Christ, and I was thinking, isn't that the same thing? As soon as somebody comes to new life in Christ, we all celebrate. We just celebrated a cute little baby because we love celebrating life. It's like tucked into us. And when somebody responds to the gospel, the angels aren't the only things that celebrate. We celebrate. But then, as people who are displaying who God is, we really do volunteer to kind of be cut down from our comfort, comfort and move to a different place. That's what missionaries do. And every one of us is really called to do that, whether it's in China or wherever else God may send us to take this beauty of life and put it in places where they don't see it. And then, even the death of the saints is beautiful in the eyes of God because when this world and sin just sort of dries us out, when our lives finally end and are crushed, the potpourri of the fragrance of Christ comes out. What a cool thing that we get to live out. And so, in that mind, that really last thought of the suffering of Christians is our context 
as we dive into the text this evening. So go ahead, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're just going to work slowly through verses 12 to 19. I'm going to read 12 to the beginning of 13 now, and then I'm going to pray for us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Let's pray for a minute and then we'll dig in. Father, you have given us your word. You have given those of us who have put our faith and our trust in Christ new life. You have taken a heart of stone and you have replaced it with a heart of flesh. You have given people whose only purpose was themselves and their own selfishness a purpose of eternity in seeking souls for Christ. You have given us so much. And you have given us as Christians an option to suffer in such a way that something productive, something encouraging, something your word even calls us to rejoice in exists in that very suffering. And so, Father, I I pray for every man and woman and child. I I pray for those who are here and those who are not, those who are listening now and those who are listening later. God, I I pray that you would challenge our our preconceived notions of this life. And I mean that across the board. I, I don't just mean the Christian. I pray that every one of us would, for just a few moments together tonight, break out of the rhythm of assuming every next breath is coming, every next day is coming, and every rhythm that we have known is going to continue to be a a rhythm that we live. By now, we should realize that is not the case. And instead, Lord, would you show us something more exciting, something with an incredible adventure, something for our enthusiasm to get riled up for as you call the Christian in good times and in bad to be able to produce something that is glorious in your sight. Father, make us glorious in your sight. And not just by the way we think or the theology that we have. Not just by maybe the things that we do in silence in our prayer or in our reading. But in every holistic element of who we are. May we be caught up in the wonder of Christ. So whether good, bad, in difficulty, in despair, or in delight, we would be filled with your spirit. Pray all those things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if we look at these two verses, the first thing that I want to do is I want to challenge you with the underlined portions. I didn't even read the rest of 13 because I think this would be enough for us to just chew on for a minute. Beloved, do not be surprised, but rejoice. And when Peter here is talking about trials, he goes in and he says fiery trials. So he's not just saying when you stub your toe, I, I, I think I almost broke my toe like three nights ago. And it was worse because I was moving something because the dog that I like the least in our family had to have special care and he was driving me crazy anyway. So I hit my toe. You know how it is, blah, blah, blah. Well, that, that kind of stuff goes. You hit your head just the wrong way and you're just ready to call it quits for the day, Right? And what Peter is saying is, across the board, whatever trial you have, whether it's that or, let's go into the darkness together for a little bit, martyrdom, right? Or the loss of a loved one, the loss of a child, the loss of whatever. He says, very simply, beloved, do not be surprised, but rejoice. How are we supposed to do that? That is our goal, our task, and by God's grace, his word for us tonight. Beloved, do not be surprised. James puts it similar In uh, chapter 1, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. I thought this was neat that James looks and he says, hey, those various trials, I want you to find joy in all of it, brothers. And then Peter, he says, here's the deal, 
beloved, do not be surprised. I had never thought about the fact. I've always thought that as a Christian, it is my job to just sort of be gritty, right? It's my job as a Christian to take difficulty and be like, all right, Jesus is good. And if I'm not feeling it, I yell my worship song instead of singing my worship song. Some of y'all have been in that place where you get in your car and you're so angry, you just turn it up and you're like, glory be to God. And you just start going crazy. And God's like, that's not even a good noise and all of these kind of things. But notice this, in God's word, when, when suffering comes, he sort of says, hey, beloved, hey, brother, I love you. I'm telling you this because I love you. There's, there's one thing that I would challenge all of us to do. This may be the only thing that you get out of the sermon tonight. And if you do, I, I'm sort of cool with it. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. And I can't usually say that. But here is your first challenge. Reject the idea that suffering is avoidable. Make the decision in your life right now to just choose mentally that for the rest of your days, you are going to reject the idea that suffering is avoidable. Absolutely reject it. Think about how much time and energy has been spent in humanity trying to avoid or mitigate suffering and nobody has pulled it off yet. Reject the idea that suffering is avoidable, but when the gospel comes into this, here is how God would say it to us. Beloved, suffering is common, but your response should not be. Beloved, suffering is common, but your response should not be. We, if you're a Christian, are ships in a very tumultuous sea. And some of us, I'm not talking about just in this room, I'm talking about Christianity in general. Some of us think that being a Christian means that we are destined for suffering and only for suffering, and that is the greatest thing ever. And, and, and they will take their ship and they will do everything that they can to steer it into every storm. They'll head for the storm. We actually don't see that in the gospel. We don't see it in the New Testament. We don't see it in, in, uh, in the gospel going forward through missions. Other people, Christian and non, they will see suffering coming, and they'll spend all this time and all of this energy just trying to weave themselves around everything, spending tons of energy and never actually fully avoiding the storms. I don't think that's what God calls us to. In fact, I know it's not what God calls us to. What God calls us to as Christians is to be the kind of ships that are not spending our energy looking for storms to walk into, nor wasting our energy trying to avoid them as though we can. God's desire is that we would spend our energy spreading the sails of our souls to catch his spirit, to, to catch more of him through his word, through prayer, through worship, through fasting. Fill in your blank that we would spread our souls out, that, that we would pull tight the ropes of our discipline and build into our boat enough strength so that when that wayward wave comes, like we were just singing about it, right? The anchor will hold fast. When this wayward wave comes or this unforeseen storm, because that is the life that we live in, our ship, by God's grace, can punch through that storm, can weather that wave, and come through on the other side. That is what God's word calls us to. And what we find is that the Christian, you're going to notice I'm going back and forth, okay? Because here's the thing. Suffering is real for the Christian, and it's real for the non-Christian. But the Christian has a unique opportunity and, 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 and sort of an availability to do something with suffering that the non-Christian does not. The Christian suffers in two distinct ways. One will produce joy. The other doesn't. You'll see it in the verses as I read it. Verse 13 to 15. But rejoice 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Do you see the two different ways coming out of that? Rejoice as much as you're sharing in Christ's sufferings, but let none of you suffer as something else. The easy way to put it, if you're a note taker, here's what you can jot down. In this world, Christians will suffer for their Savior and for their sin. In this world, Christians will suffer for their Savior and for their sin. Now, when I say you're going to suffer for your sin, I don't mean you're going to pay for it, right? Only Jesus can pay for our sin. But what I do mean is this, being a Christian does not mitigate the fact that we stop sinning, right? Everybody in this room would agree, coming to Christ does not make us stop sinning completely. And when we do, there is suffering that attends that just because of our sin. But if we're suffering for Christ, the Bible says there's actually something better than the regret of that sinful suffering. There's actual joy. There's rejoicing tucked into it. And so if we reject the idea that suffering is avoidable, what we find is the Christian can suffer for something, not just suffer from something. Let's start with the negative. Christians will suffer for their sin in this world. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. It's interesting. That word meddler doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. And if you look at those four sins, it's a very small list, but it really is covering a lot of sin. I mean, usually when when I'm in kids' ministry and I'm like, hey guys, what's a bad sin? Murder, right? It just kind of falls off of our lips. That's the bad one, right? Like Cain and Abel. That's not very brotherly. We don't kill each other. We may want to kill each other. We don't actually kill each other. And, And then... Uh, Peter walks us through, and he's like, I mean, you've got murder, and then you've got being a thief, you've got folks who are just sort of generally evil, and then meddlers. And I love that they're included, those people who just kind of get in your business, and you wish that they wouldn't. They annoy you. They're all Enneagram 8s. I'm just kidding. They're not really all Enneagram. But uh, all of us can stick our noses and our fingers in places, and I just love the fact that Peter's like, murder, meddling, it's all sin. Let me show you a little graphic little illustration that may help. I think there's a little red triangle that's going to appear. Here's something that I I think we need to uh, just own. There are sins that we are okay with in our lives. We are. Now, we may not say out loud, theologically, that we are okay with that sin, but we don't live like it's really a problem. It's been a problem in your life for a very long time. In fact, it's been such a problem in your life, you've been tempted to call it personality-driven. Or just something that is a part of who you are. It's a thorn in the flesh. It's always going to be there. I'm not arguing the fact that whatever comes to your mind when I say those things is going to disappear tomorrow. But I do want you to understand this. All sin causes suffering. And so when I look at this, nobody would argue that murder brings suffering, right? The consequences may be different. You kill somebody, and you've got some pretty dire consequences. You poke your nose into a place that it doesn't belong. The consequences don't seem quite as bad. But I want you to understand something. Jesus had to die for both of them. And his death was death for both of those things. So while the consequences may be different, let's not lull ourselves to sleep 
that my sin isn't on the big side of the triangle. My sin's on the little side of the triangle. That, that is not what we're called to. In fact, we see this played out in Scripture exactly. Psalm 51 was written by David. It was written by David after he had murdered. And not only had he murdered, he committed another sin, which was adultery. I mean, we're talking about kind of the big heavy hitters, are we not? He also lied and, and, and deceived, and he was lazy. There were a whole lot of things going into that. But he's, his triangle is crazy big. And here's what he writes to God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is a guy who believed in God, was following God, was God's guy, okay? And yet he writes this and he says, I recognize that judgment is expected. Now, wait a minute, Will. I thought that there was no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. How is David writing about judgment? Maybe it's just because it's that big sin of murder or adultery or something else like this. No, we can jump to the other side of the triangle easily. Ecclesiastes 12. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. I love this verse because I have no clue what most of you guys have been into this week. But God does and I love his spirit, that as I'm reading this text, that as I'm talking about secret sin, that every one of us is processing our brokenness and our secret sin. It's not because I hate you, not because I want to watch you like squirm or be in pain. It's because I want you to realize the gift that comes when we realize that as Christians, we still sin and it brings suffering. And why is this all being written? Because God's saying, if you're going to suffer for being a Christian, why add unproductive suffering to it? You're already going to suffer for being a Christian. Why suffer for more sin on top? It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. It pushes against the very things that you say. All right, let me play this out for you in a very real way. There are, <clears throat> in, in other words, how unavoidable suffering is, but how the outcomes can be very different, whether it's on the sin side of things or the serving Christ side of things. I'm just going to be very real with you guys. I try to be a very real person. Will is a pastor. I am fighting sin like every other one of you, okay? If Will is driving in his truck and he pulls up to a red light and a, a woman is jogging on the side and her clothes are not covering up everything as well as it should be, Will doesn't get a pastor card that makes me blind to that. I don't get free passes for, for being married for a certain period of time or being some certain age. I talked to somebody the other day. I was like, so is lust a thing at 60 and 70? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, it! I mean, come on. Can't we age out of some of this stuff eventually? So I pull up at the light. It, uh, you know what? This may as well be a true story. I can't think of one. But I, I pull up at the red light, and there's a, a, a woman running. Attractive woman, not wearing enough clothing. In that moment, there are two ways for me to suffer. There are two ways for you to suffer. If, if lust isn't the, the thing that kind of gets your gear turning and makes you squirm, just keep in mind, lust doesn't just mean sexual sin. Lust could mean a desire to be seen as something. It can be as much self-image, the way I want people to see me, as it can the thing that I want when I see it. Understand that. So I, I pull up to the red light, and I look through my windshield, and there she is running. And in that moment, I can decide, am I going to feed my flesh? Am I going to allow my mind and my body and, and, and every part of me to indulge in that thing that I know is sin and death? Or am I not going to? And, and here's the thing. If I do, I suffer for sin. 
In that moment, I am spurring the work of Christ in my life. In that moment, I am unloving to my wife. I am unloving to my children. I am bringing brokenness into me. If I don't repent of that, it could move from that to pulling up my phone and doing the same thing even more frequently than when the world gives it to me. And if that continues, I don't put my phone down and now maybe I'm texting somebody. And next thing you know, I'm having an emotional affair or I'm having a physical affair. And next thing you know, everything goes down. And now it's not just my intimacy with God and my intimacy with my wife. It's whether or not I have custody with my children. And that may sound like a bleak story to you. But can I just tell you, That when I have talked with people whose marriages have ended because of sin. I'm not just talking about adultery or lust. They have ended because of sin. None of them expected that first step to get them to the last. That is what sin does. And when I give into that, I suffer. But if I don't give into it, I suffer anyway. But the suffering is very different. If I don't give into it, and I continue to keep my hands, or I distract myself in some other way, as soon as she's past the windshield, she's next to this window, and I have to fight it then too. And as soon as she's past there, I've got a side mirror. As soon as she's past there, I've got a rear view mirror. But here's the difference. In that moment when I say no, I am praying to God, God, would you give me the strength to say no to my sin? Would you give me the ability? And when God does, I realize the intimacy that I have with God. I feel the power that his spirit gives me to say no to sin. I feel in my mind and in my body and in my soul the ability to say no to sin. And the light turns green. And I turn down the street and it happens all over again. It's suffering either way. But in one, I have death and destruction. And in the other way of suffering, instead, I realize that God loves me, supplies for me, desires for me to live a life that is worth others looking at and comforts me, I know that God is there. Thomas Watson, by the way, I am only quoting Thomas Watson tonight because I've been reading one of his books. I cannot get enough of the guy. When two things are frozen together, the best way to separate them is by fire. So when the heart and the world are together, God has no better way to separate them than by the fire of affliction. Suffer as a Christian. You're going to suffer anyway. Suffer as a Christian, not as someone indulging in sin. Verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. This is the only time in the entire Bible the word Christian is used in a positive note. I find that very interesting. And I'll tell you why it encourages me that this is the only place. Because it's not new for being a Christian to bring difficulty. When God's word was being written, when Jesus' acts and miracles were fresh on the minds of people, Christianity was still seen as a negative thing to the world. It still didn't make sense. There was still no reason to give up all this and give up all this and give up all this, and what are you really getting for it in response? Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God In that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What is going on here? Well, you remember, we saw judgment in David, right? Murder, adultery. We saw judgment in the little meddlers who can't keep their their little bitty paws out of all of our little bitty lives, right? We see judgment there, but notice the big difference here. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
If judgment is resting on those who are resting in Christ, what do those who do not have Christ have to rest in? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When, when the Bible here says scarcely saved, it doesn't mean that Jesus was barely enough of a sacrifice for your sin. Right? Your red triangle was so big that Jesus looked at you and was like, good gracious. I mean, this guy's ridiculous. All of these people were sort of, they were on the low side of the trail, but this guy, no. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Done, paid for, I've got it. But we look around our world and God's work is not finished. And so what is happening here is it's saying the scarcely saved, the, the Bible is saying God is telling us that we are saved at a very, very great cost. Jesus' death on the cross was the most pricely thing that was ever given. And not only that, the cost isn't done yet because the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, is still working in you. He's not done. Jesus' work may be finished on your behalf, but we are not finished in this world. We are not finished living out the lives that God calls us to. The question is, is God's judgment of us going to be punishment or actually confirmation? Look at Romans 8. It'll appear behind me, and you'll see what I mean. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's a judgment text. If you live according to the flesh, you're, you're going the sin route, the sin route, the sin route. The Bible makes it very clear, you will die. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. There is not some special purgatory for you to figure it out later. You will die. End of story, done. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, which, by the way, is everything that I'm saying right now, you will live. And it doesn't stop there. Because now we see how this judgment is different. For all who are led by the Spirit, all who are not looking out the window, but are praying to God whenever sin comes up, those who are led by the Spirit are sons of, sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, the, the picture of the little guy that we threw up, he had very little say about the family that he was going to find himself in. And we as Christians had very little say. We weren't smarter or wiser, sharper, had better families. No, God loved us as a father. And what this text is crying out is, as Christians, we should receive discipline as sons, not punishment as criminals. So if in this world, Christians are going to suffer for their Savior, and that can actually bring joy, or will suffer for a sin which would bring regret, keep in mind that is temporary. After this world, Christians will neither suffer for their Savior nor for their sin. There is a country that I am going to where there is no more suffering. I'm not there yet. And I am, I hesitate to say this right now, maybe it's just because I've had a pretty decent week. I'm glad that I'm not quite there yet because I'm surrounded by people who I love. I'm surrounded by people who are created in God's image. And I also know this, that after this world, non-Christians will suffer without a savior for their sin. If you're a Christian, that should affect your heart. If you're a believer, this thought that non-Christians will suffer without a savior for their sin should cause your heart to turn within you. The realization that everything that you deserve, you're not getting, but Christ gets. And everything that they deserve, they are getting because they didn't reach out or cry out to him. 
That should affect us. And so my plea is that you would suffer for the sake of Christ who suffered for your sake, Christian. And if you do this, then in this world, we will suffer for our Savior, but it will bring joy. Thomas Watson, quote number two. It's a wonderful book. If anybody's interested in reading it along with me, give me a call. When God lays men upon their backs, then they look up to heaven. God smiting his people is like the musician striking upon the violin, which makes it put forth melodious sounds. How much good comes to the saints by affliction. When they are pounded, they send forth their sweetest smell. Affliction is a bitter root, but it bears the sweetest fruit. The last verse in this chapter reads as following in verse 19. Therefore, based on all of these things, Two ways to suffer, two very different things. If you are in Christ, you have the privilege of being able to suffer for something, not just suffer because of something. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, there's our clarifier, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. So what I'm about to tell you is not me patting you on the back if you're digging into your sin. What I'm saying is, if you are fighting for Christ and fighting sin and suffering still comes, it's going to get it out of your mind that suffering is avoidable, then there is something encouraging for us. A faithful creator that we entrust our souls to and there is something good for us to do. I showed you guys a red triangle a little while ago and I listed out some sins and we we talked about the fact that all sin brings suffering, but the the reflexive of that is true as well. Godly suffering brings good. There'll be a little green triangle behind me right now. There are three ways that I want to challenge you when you leave tonight to suffer the right way, to suffer for Christ in all the right ways, that God would be glorified, that you would rejoice, that the world would be changed because of your life. Because here's the deal, we're not getting away from suffering, so we may as well use it for something. Godly suffering will bring good. And here's the thing, I'm just going to talk to you about three. There are dozens in Scripture And it's very similar to our sin. Murder brings incredible consequence. Well, giving up our lives for Christ brings incredible benefit. It is the martyrs in Christ who have the greatest reward. Don't be fooled. I I don't know where some of us get our theology. Heaven is wonderful. It is not equal. There are martyrs in heaven, according to the book of Revelation, that are looking at God saying, all right, God, how much longer? How much longer until this judgment is going to come? And they are clothed differently. But I also want you to realize that just as we should really attack every small sin, whether we call it personality or attitude or whatever else it is, the same thing is true when we suffer for good things, even if they seem small. Let me give you three. Number one, I want us to be a people who give comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of mercies and the God of of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, suffering is the context, but comfort is the center message of the text. When I was 
absolutely lost in my sin, seven or eight years old. I grew up probably very similar to you guys. I had the evangelist come into the church and tell me all about hell and all about darkness and what gnashing of teeth meant and how it would be to burn for all eternity. And I was like, don't want to go there. Just put me in a bucket of water if that's what it takes. I don't want to go to hell. It's not the best gospel message. It's true. But in addition to that truth, the thing that actually brought me to Christ was the fact that he was my greatest comfort. When I was fearful of that, when I recognized my own sin, Jesus was the one who comforted me and gave me salvation through his word. When I suffered today with my own sin, I haven't come up with a better way. Jesus is still the comfort. I look at my own sin and I realize that Jesus sees me as a brother, that God sees me as his son, not as a distant judge waiting to dole out punishment. And it causes me to run toward him when when I see in this world other people's sin. Because Jesus comforts me in mine, I can show grace to them. And sometimes I just walk around and realize I'm in a broken world. And the only hope that I have is that God has a much better one than this. When I was reading through this text, I I was journaling earlier in the week. and, And I took my notes and I put them here. I was writing this in my prayer to God. I said, God... I honestly don't feel like I'm sharing in Christ's suffering. That was my my note to God. I honestly don't feel like I'm sharing in Christ's suffering. Just suffering in a broken world. And the moment I wrote that down, I think the Holy Spirit just grabbed a hold of it. That word, just. I'm just suffering in a broken world. And I was reminded of the fact that Jesus broke down into great tears when his friend died. When Lazarus died, Jesus knew he was about to bring him back from the dead. He knew that people were going to see something that was going to wreck their minds and their models and draw them to him. And yet he was crying. Why? Because he was crying over Lazarus. Well, sort of. He was crying because death is a reality and that was never what God had for us. When Jesus says that the poor will always be with you, when Peter denies him and walks him away, being a Christian in a broken world is suffering. And we don't need to be over-righteous saying, well, God is sovereign in all things, and God is sovereign in all things. That is true. It still stinks. It's still horrible that, that, that as we live these lives, all we see is brokenness all around us. I believe in God's sovereignty. I trust that when one gear of a watch is going this way, and I see God's providence, and it seems like the world is going the other, he still keeps the clock face moving in the right direction at the right time. I get that. It's still horrible. And and, and we need to be able to cry out to God in that. And I I, I can't remember. Was it Nathaniel? What was the little baby's name? Lucas. What was his middle name? Okay. When Lucas came into this world, I would be willing to bet the first thing he did was cry. You know what? That's absolutely appropriate. This is a poisoned, broken world. Being born into it should cause us to cry. But the first response of the mom is to comfort. And we need to be close enough with our Heavenly Father to be willing to weep and cry and be angry and upset that this world is broken and know that it is his first response to come and comfort us so that we can give that comfort to others. Secondly, I want this suffering to cause you to receive intimacy. Verse 14 said, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. 
When you suffer because of your sin, man, that's just you being a dumb joker. That's on you. But when you suffer because of Christ, the Bible tells us that in a special way, his spirit comes and attends to us. He draws us into greater intimacy with him. Thomas Watson, again, not, not a quote. I'm just going to paraphrase here. He said, keep in mind that Jonah was awake and doing fine on the ship. It wasn't until he was in the belly of the whale that he began to pray. Suffering draws us into intimacy with God. The greatest person that we read of outside of Jesus suffering in the Bible is Job. And in the beginning of Job, God says, Job is a righteous man. You know what that tells me? It tells me he was saying no to sin. It tells me he was looking away and not looking through the windshield. And yet God takes Job through incredible suffering. And do you know what Job wrote in his journal at the end of the ordeal? Here's what we read. I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. But Job, you were righteous. What do you mean you didn't know? He goes on, I had heard of you, speaking of God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job, the most righteous man on the planet, the one that the enemy wanted to pluck out. He looks at Job and he says, I want to watch that guy fall. And God says, go for it. Go for whatever you want. There is no one in this world as righteous as Job. And Job gets to the end of his suffering, not the beginning of his suffering. And he says, now I've seen God. Some of us don't realize the glory of suffering, not for our sin, but suffering for the righteousness and the sake of Christ. We're not going to avoid it anyway. So why not utilize it? Beloved brother, when COVID steals from you someone that you love, when you watch your bank account plummet in financial instability, when we look at our government and all of the uncertainty, brother, beloved, we walk through this as a ship through the sea, neither walking into it nor trying to avoid it, because as we go through every one of these waves, it draws us closer and closer and closer to the shore of heaven and the reality of Christ. And finally this, I want these sufferings to cause you to be a witness. When Moses was just hanging out in the wilderness and walking around, he, uh, he, he caught out of the corner of his eye a bush that was burning. I, I guarantee you Moses had seen fire before in his life. But this was different. This bush was burning and it didn't burn up. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. And it caught his eye and it drew him in. And we as Christians are to be burned with affliction seared with affliction, and yet we never relent, we never give up, we never stop being who we are called to be. And when we do that, just as Moses was drawn in to see something he had not seen that was unusual, as he drew near to the warmth of that fire, and he drew into such an intimacy with God that the guy had to take off his shoes, we realize that we too, in our sufferings, can be a, a bush that does not burn up. We can be a flower that, yes, there is joy when we are born in Christ. And there will be everlasting joy when we are born in heaven. And we may suffer a little bit as God moves us from here to there on the mission field or to a different job or a different people. And we try as best as we can to display the work of Christ. But when we wither up at the end, when our life is taken away, when we suffer today, tomorrow, or forever, when we are crushed an aroma comes forth that the world doesn't smell anywhere I realize that in politics right now, all of us feel similar or different. Yeah, 
And I've heard a lot of different things from Christians with a lot of different perspectives. I've heard a lot of people say, just wait, you'll see. We won. Just wait, you'll see. We lost. I've heard people say, I don't even care anymore. I would just say, that's, that's not what we're called to as Christians. We open ourselves, asking that God would fill us. We pull tight the ropes of discipline. Read, pray, we gather, we fast, we share. And when any wayward wave comes, or an unexpected storm appears on the horizon, we bust through. And that is not news. We as Americans have gotten very comfortable being able to be a Christian in a country. There is not a one of us in this room or listening online that, that during our lifetime have not had brothers or sisters overseas or in other places that didn't expect anything from their government. In fact, what they expected from their government was persecution. I'm not worried about the American church. I think that's sort of a fallacy on itself. I'm concerned that the church in America would suffer well. And that when we do, the world, our nation, and our neighbors would smell something, see something, and watch something that draws them into warmth, intimacy, comfort with God. I, I don't want to give you the wrong impression that Christian life is not all about suffering. But suffering is all about Jesus. And while this life is not all about suffering, when you suffer, let it be for Christ. You get to pick. Why waste it on sin? Allow your suffering to be for Christ. Let's pray. Father, I, I didn't know what was coming when 2020 began, and I don't know what's coming as 2021 begins. I'm grateful that you tell me that my prayer to you should be for my daily bread. And I'm grateful that your word is full of promises, that you will give us enough for each trial and each struggle as they come, that you will deal with tomorrow while we trust you today. Father, may every Christian in this room recognize that suffering is unavoidable, but we can avoid suffering for our own sin and foolishness. And instead, we can suffer as sons and daughters who you brought to life will take to different places, many of which will be difficult to live in. And one day you will even allow the ending of our life, the message of our tombstone, the memory in those who knew us be a fragrant offering to you if we will be about the things of Christ today. We pray all these things in Christ's name.